which is someone may heal and recover from our interventions, but then as soon as some extra stress comes into their lives, they're back into the clinic again. Because what's happened is there's been uh, coupling, neuronal coupling, where stress and the stress response has got coupled with the immune response. And therefore, a lot of our work is also teaching people how to manage stress. And even when stress comes along, how do they make sure they don't go back into a dip and have symptoms coming back? So that's a really important part of retraining. So we're retraining the primary cycle, which is the body's response to its own symptoms. And then the secondary cycle, which is retraining the brain to enable people to go on to keep their nervous system calm so that even if stress occurs, it doesn't re-trigger symptoms back in the body. Welcome to the Metagenics Institute podcast, a place where you can hear from leading experts in health and wellness, from scientists and researchers to internationally recognized clinicians. Enjoy this insightful conversation with host Nathan Rose. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Metagenics Institute podcast. I'm your host, Nathan Rose, and I'm very pleased to be joined again once more by Ashok Gupta. Good morning, Ashok. Hi there. Good morning. Lovely to see you. Likewise. It's been, I think, uh, probably 18 months or something. A lot's happened since we last spoke because there's this thing called COVID broke out. Um, So today we're here to talk about some of your research that's underway on long COVID, um, and a couple other topics around COVID and how your program may be helpful there. So before we dive into that, maybe for those who didn't miss our first episode, and I've got to say I was really um, blown away by the response we had from our first conversation. So thank you for that. And if this one's half as popular as um, our first one, I'll be very pleased. But um, for those who did miss it, can you perhaps just describe briefly your background and, and the program you've, you've been doing um, up until COVID and during COVID? Uh, yes, of course. So, um, as many of you may know uh, who, who listened to the original one, um, so I suffered from ME or chronic fatigue syndrome many years ago, and I decided to kind of dedicate my life to supporting patients with those types of illnesses. And so, I originally published a medical hypothesis in 2002 as to what I believed caused ME CFS and other <clears throat> neurological conditions, um, got myself fully well, and then set up a global clinic to treat others. And uh, then we've since then we've published a, a few other pieces of research in the in the area in the field. And essentially, the background is that we believe that a lot of these chronic illnesses, although they manifest in the physical body, the core of it lies in the brain. Core conditioning events in the brain. And uh, we believe specifically, and we'll obviously talk about it, the amygdala and the insular parts of the brain seem to be where animal studies are pointing to as this core conditioning. So rather than thinking of these illnesses as peripheral and uh, we're treating them at the peripheral level, we're attempting to treat them at the core level using brain retraining neuroplasticity approaches that we call uh, the Gupta program. Yeah. And outside of chronic fatigue, you've also seem to be getting success in other areas like food intolerances and SIBO and pain disorders, anxiety, depression. Can you list some of those conditions that you you seem to be getting success with as well? Uh, Yes, absolutely. So as you've mentioned some of them there, it's essentially what we describe the kinds of conditions that um, you see your doctor for, and they may be able to give you certain uh, medications that can uh, relieve the symptoms, but essentially they can't get to the core of it. 
traditional medicine it finds it challenging and the reason it may be challenging is because it's a different kind of disorder it is a functional disorder but the core of it is neurological and in the brain so yes that is ME, ME in chronic fatigue syndrome which is where we started but also pain syndrome so fibromyalgia unexpected pain syndromes etc and then what we call the sensitivity reaction so that's chemical sensitivities mold sensitivities um, chronic inflammatory responses uh, food sensitivities and those kinds of things and then uh, things to do with the gut so yeah the IBS and SIBO that kind of are, are associated with those food sensitivities as well another condition that's receiving a lot of press recently is mast cell activation and although mast cell activation is gaining more credence really once again we see that as a mediating factor <clears throat> rather than a core reason for the pathology uh -huh. Yeah. Um, so that's something that we're treating as well. So there's a whole spectrum of different illnesses where <clears throat> rather than seeing them, uh, these illnesses as a deficits of a particular uh, set of hormonal responses or enzyme responses, what we're saying is the core of it is in the brain and, and therefore the brain can be retrained and the system then responds and returns back to normal function and normal homeostasis. So all of these functional disorders are a continuing altered state of homeostasis or a lack of homeostasis. Yeah. It's fascinating. I really love that sort of um, upstream effect and uh, of the program. So you published your paper, your clinical trial. When was that? Was that late 2019? Um, and what was the response from of the paper? Yeah, so in 2020, um, we oh, published... Yeah, it was late 2020, we published our randomized control trial <clears throat> of our program uh, on its effects on fibromyalgia patients uh, in Spain. And this was published in the Journal of Clinical Medicine. And essentially, uh, what it found was that compared to a control, and we used a, a relaxation control with an, you know, an equivalent amount of uh, practitioner time, uh, we had some dramatic effects in the active group being the Gupta program. So the primary measure was fibromyalgia scores, the FIQ scores, and in the control group there was no impact on fibromyalgia scores, but in the active group there was a close to a 40% reduction in fibro scores within eight weeks. There was a halving of pain and a halving of depression and anxiety and a 50% increase in perceived health, and in the control groups uh, there were anything between 6 to 15% effects versus you know close to 50 percent effects in wow. the so it was a really strong result uh, for a pilot study and obviously on the back of that our program is uh, gaining more credence amongst mainstream medical professionals and indeed we have a lot of functional um, and integrative doctors who are recommending our program as part of an overall treatment regime and some are even finding that they are actually prescribing our program to people on the waiting list in advance of people coming to see them oh. because it gives them a head start with then uh, other medications, enzyme changes, uh, you know, the lifestyle changes sure. that they think the patients should make. Yeah. Great. So, yeah, you were finalising your paper, I presume, late 2019 and then obviously uh, March 2020 or thereabouts, the world changed um, and COVID spread through the world as a, a pandemic um, and then... Uh, we started hearing reports of patients um, experiencing this condition of long COVID, um, where they get this prolonged fatigue and so forth. Um, did you start to get an inkling at that stage that perhaps your program would be beneficial? So, yeah, describe what's happened with you and your practice and your method um, with the, you know, 
advent or the the spread of COVID and the, the development of long COVID? Uh, yes, yeah, so we were one of the first clinics to begin to see these patients coming in who didn't really know where else to go because they'd seen their doctor. The doctor said, look, you sure you've got some kind of post-viral syndrome? I'm sure you'll be fine. And we started seeing these anecdotal reports and beginning to then support those patients. And then obviously long COVID became more and more recognized as an actual illness that many people were beginning to suffer from. But we had no idea the level of uh, the percentage of patients that would come forward. It's been an avalanche of patients. And um, I think we had an inkling because the symptoms that we were seeing were very similar to the ones that we traditionally treat. And the mechanisms were very similar. So people obviously being exposed to a virus, perhaps being in a more fatigued state at that point in time, or overwhelmed state, and then some kind of adverse reaction, and then continuing lingering symptoms. So we could see a lot of the parallels straight away. And that made us think, well, okay, what, what happens if these patients start using our program? What would be the effects? Yeah. And I suppose, I presume you, you anecdotally you started uh, beginning to see some benefits, hence, um, you know, the investigation as a clinical trial. So, yeah, can you describe some of the, the benefits I, I presume you were seeing? Uh, yes, of course. So it was something which um, we advise those patients to treat it in exactly the same way, you know, as they would any CFS. Yes. Um, and we said, obviously, because this is a new condition, from an ethical perspective, they would need to do that in conjunction with their doctor because having regular check-ins with their doctor, making sure there aren't other things that may be involved. But if they're having those regular check-ins, then it'd be okay to use our program in parallel. So that was very important to us because for, the, for sure, none of us truly know that the mechanism mm. along COVID at this stage yeah. is still relatively new. And um, we started noticing that patients, some patients would recover very quickly because we believe that the conditioning effects may not have had a stranglehold in the brain. So if somebody's had it for three months, six months, it could still be classed as post-viral. And therefore, by using our program, they were able to recover quite quickly. And in, indeed, we have some stories on our website, anecdotally, of people recovering within 10, 10 days, two weeks, uh, right. three weeks, something like that, getting up to the 80 90% level, and then being able to rehabilitate back into normal life. We've also had people where it's taken a few months for those positive effects to occur, Mm. for them to begin to feel the benefits. So it's been a a mixed bag of how long it takes, but certainly we've noticed it's shorter than the timescales of recovery from any CFS and fibromyalgia. And, you know, I, I think that what's really important for those types of patients is the persistence with the program. Because there's so many scare stories, and this is a relatively new condition, when somebody comes to our program, they may think, well, this could be caused by something else. And there are so many researchers saying, well, actually, you know, it could be this particular uh, viral debris that's still in the body. Mm, mm. It could be uh, challenges or changes in the blood work. It could be this global inflammation that we need to treat first, etc. And so, therefore, it's difficult for our patients to truly embrace our program as much as perhaps other patients do because it's a relatively new condition and they're taking a i suppose a uh, a, a risk you know not a risk it's it's more of an, yeah. an opportunity but it's a, it's something where it's not there's no proven uh, pathology behind this condition yeah yeah i never thought about that even with your program with um cfs patients etc that maybe obviously they've looked at 
online and um, as you probably know, a lot of your patients are very learned with their condition and they might follow the pathophysiology, you might have practitioners. I was just wondering, do you have to, um, or is it harder to, I don't have to convince is the right word, but your method is quite in, in elegant and simple that it's this sort of top-down approach and people can be thinking about all these drivers about mitochondria and inflammation, the, the gut microbiome. Are they a little bit skeptical that such a you know a sim- relatively sort of simple model can be effective? That to unlearn some of their their beliefs. It can be tricky, yes. So a lot of our work is by <clears throat> really helping people understand the hypothesis, and that it is a, a scientific hypothesis uh, that's gaining you know more and more mm. support in the medical community, and that it makes logical sense. And then, secondly, helping people realise that there is no uh, having physical observations in the body, such as high viral titers or mitochondrial yes. dysfunction, is not mutually exclusive with it being caused by the brain. Um, yes. And having this idea of upstream and downstream, and that many medical practitioners and alternative practitioners are rightly treating those downstream symptoms, and they can have that support if they want. But we're going to hopefully to the core of it, the underlying reasons why it's why it's there. And once people understand that model then it becomes easier for them to realize it's not mutually exclusive because mm-hmm. we'll have many people say, well, Ashok, I'm, you know, I'm doing your program, but my doctor's just found this abnormality in the body. Right. And we say, well, of course, you know, as in with long COVID, if you're dealing with a multi-systemic, multi-organ response throughout the body, such as the immune response, then of course, every system is going to be affected. Your gut, your brain, your kidney, your spleen, your, everything is going to be inflamed everything is going to have its own set of abnormalities and then secondary syndromes can start occurring such as secondary sensitivities, adrenal exhaustion, if there is such a thing as adrenal exhaustion. Mm-hmm. And therefore uh, it's recognizing that uh, this is a logical way of looking at these types of conditions. Yeah. Well said. Um, I might just go back to some of the um, stats and facts around long COVID just uh, out of curiosity, I'm not sure if you've really delved into it, but what percentage of patients that get um, COVID end up suffering from long COVID, do you know? Uh, yeah, so it varies according to which research study uh, you actually read. So I've seen reports anywhere between 5 to 10% up to 30%. Wow. And obviously those percentages vary according to what symptoms they're describing as long COVID. You know, are they looking at one symptom or are they, do they have a minimum criteria of two or three symptoms? Then what is the time period? Is it eight weeks? Is it 12 weeks, etc.? But I would say in our estimation, around 10% of people who've contracted COVID may go on to having long-term symptoms. Now, long-term can mean two to three months and perhaps people get better after two to three months. But actually, there's a percentage that again then go on once again to having longer-term uh, symptoms that then last a minimum of three months. And yeah. in ME and chronic fatigue syndrome, the criteria is that a minimum of six months of a set of symptoms needs to occur. Uh, and I would say that that's the real benchmark. Uh, really, is that you know, a minimum of three to six months of continuing symptoms without them abating would then characterise as long COVID. I mean, maybe we'll differentiate and say the sh- you know the short long COVID and long long COVID. But at the moment, <laughs> yeah. it would be in our things at least three months okay like that if people come to us and it's been less than three months they can still use our program to help them heal but we don't like to put them in the category of long covid 
because actually it's known that in many symptoms syndromes, including flu, uh, there can be post-viral fatigue periods that can last anything between four to 12 weeks. Because once again, flu is quite a, a challenge to the body as well. So there's no point putting someone in a long COVID bucket and then making them believe that they've got this long-term illness, where actually it could be a normal period of post-viral fatigue. Yes. And do you know if the severity of the COVID um, suffered by the patient can predict the susceptibility to um, long COVID, or you could have a mild case of COVID and develop long COVID? This is the real mystery. Um, It seems that from the research, uh, people can develop long COVID wherever they are on the spectrum of severity which is not what even we would expect at the clinic, although it, it, it can be understood in the context of our hypothesis, that we can have people who've had mild cases right through to very severe cases and have been hospitalised. Anywhere along that spectrum, they can go on to having long-term symptoms. And we believe there is a core reason for this, um, this is a hypothesis, is that it's not so much the severity of the condition itself, but it's what a patient does in the period after the infection. This is a really fascinating hypothesis, and I can't say that we, you know, absolutely 100% are behind this, but this is our current working hypothesis. That when there is an insult to the body, so that you have the COVID-19 infection, it is obviously a a big challenge to the body. And um, we know, for instance, that the people who are unfortunately passing away from, from long COVID, it's not the... COVID-19 infection per se that is causing deaths, it is the over-inflammatory response from the body, which is inflaming the lungs, uh, interrupting the breathing processes, reducing then blood oxygen, and then causing the whole system to break down. And therefore, there is a precedent to say that it's not so much the illness, but it's our body's response to the illness that can cause these uh, problems. It was over-inflammatory, this cytokine storm that many patients are experiencing. And so, Wherever someone is on the spectrum, the body is doing its best to fight off this virus according to what it believes the severity of the immune response should be. Now, once someone, once the immune system has successfully fought off the virus or believes it has successfully fought off the virus, if a person was already in quite a, 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 a devitalized state, they sometimes call it. So that can be not just emotional stress, but that can be physical stress. We've got athletes coming to us who have athletes overtraining syndrome, who've basically overtrained in the gym or as part of their uh, sport. Uh, we've had people who've work, been working really long hours. So it can be mental, physical, or emotional stress on the body. That then, once the body has fought it off, it then, unfortunately, errs on the side of caution and says, have we truly fought off this virus? Because this virus was life-threatening. And if you remember from, the, from our last conversation, the brain and the body's absolute number one priority is survival. Yeah. Yep. Survival is number one to pass on our genes to the next generation. Yep. So that, that idea of the, the selfish gene that wants to continue to keep passing on its, its um, the, the bloodline, as it were. And therefore, even if somebody has recovered from the condition, the brain says, let me just make sure. Let me put the whole immune system on a state of readiness and alert. And if somebody then goes back to work prematurely or perhaps is in that devitalized state, we may then see a continuing immune response, a a continual stimulation of that immune system and that nervous system leading to ongoing symptoms. And an analogy that I think 
is very useful for our patients and, and hopefully people on this podcast is the idea of uh, the Game of Thrones analogy. So I'm sure there's many Games of Thrones, Game of Thrones uh, fans out there. So imagine you are the king or queen of the castle, yeah, and your castle has been devitalized. So there's been a drought, yeah, and therefore the army and navy. The army is your nervous system. The navy is your immune system. Yeah, they are also suffering because there's a drought in the kingdom. Now suddenly there's an invader that comes over the hill. It's COVID nineteen. Yeah, and the immune system and nervous system. The, the, the army and navy are galvanized. They manage to fight their very best to defend the king and queen and defend the castle. And they manage to fight off the incoming invaders. But now the immune system and nervous system are exhausted. The army and navy are, are depleted. They've lost a lot of their resources. And they become traumatized by that war. And therefore, they demand more and more resources from the castle. They say, look, we get another attack like that, we're not going to make it. We're going to be overrun. So we demand more resources from the castle and all of our battalions need to be on a state of alert and readiness, yeah. Yeah. which keeps the castle weak because now all the food, all the resources are going to the army and navy. Now what happens is that army and navy are so traumatized that there is something in the brain called differential activation, which means that initially 100 units of threat would create 100 units of response. But now 10 units of potential threat or perceived threat will create 100 units of response. And that can be in the, in the state of mold illness, chemical sensitivities, or indeed uh, viruses. So now the army and navy, even if they see 10 people from a rival village coming over the hill, they believe that that is a threat and evidence of incoming invasion. So they suddenly galvanize the entire battalion and they go out and they start fighting just 10 invaders. Yeah. And that then is the analogy that whatever was there at the time of the original sensitizing event or the having the COVID-19 infection, that becomes a conditioned trigger for the immune system and nervous system, the army and navy, to continually over-respond, draining the body of us all, all its resources, causing global and widespread inflammation in the body and the brain, and then all the dying stream effects on the kidneys, the gut, etc. So that's a kind of overall explanation and then finally in this model those symptoms become condition triggers themselves so not only is it the invading army but when the castle then notices and the king or queen notice that wow the army and navy are depleted you know we're having all of these potential threats coming over the border we must galvanize even more resources to the immune system and nervous system and get them even on high alert even more so the brain keeps responding to the very symptoms in the body itself triggering the immune system and nervous system, creating more downstream symptoms, which feed back to a highly sensitized brain, causing this vicious cycle and ongoing disease. It's fascinating. It's a, a great analogy. Um, yeah, it really made me think, and also that paper you sent through, which we'll discuss in a moment perhaps, um, that understandably a lot of the immunology is obviously on the immune system and the T cells and the B cells, and we've got vaccines and trying to create immunity um but yeah i never really thought too much about the sort of the the neural control or the the, the brain's control of the nervous system um but like from an evolutionary perspective we had a um a psychologist on a few months ago talking about the pathogen stress theory about our brains you know it's probably the one the greatest threats all through you know our evolution was infectious disease and we will change our behavior and um it 
our behavior can change our, our immune system um, to to ward off from these threats. But it sounds like now they've they've had they've they've dealt with the threat, but they're really on edge and hyper vigilant and probably over sensitive to any sort of um, threat in the future. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So um, on that note, you. <laughs> There, there is some research that does suggest that the the two parts of the brain, or particularly the insula that you've been focused in, could be central to this um this sort of uh, central memory to infections and and coordinating um, responses, or I suppose excessive responses to immune threat. Can you describe um, the insula and what it's doing in around immunity? Sure. So in traditional immunology, there has been this idea that uh, there is both central system, some kind of central system that stores uh, memory of immune responses, but it, that, that theory wasn't necessarily well developed, but more that the peripheral immune system recognizes threats at the localized level and creates the appropriate response. And it's a coordinated response. But the exact communication of that response is quite complex. Now, in this latest paper, it's something that we've been talking about for the last 10 to 15 years. Um, but now, you know, a lot more scientific research is validating this, this idea, is that actually there is a central mechanism in the brain, specifically in the insular part of the brain, that stores that immune memory and at a moment's notice can re-trigger it at the centralized and peripheral level. And the insula is a, a structure that sits between the cortex and the, the limbic system. So it's not formally part of the limbic system. And I know that some people call this limbic retraining, but that's not truly accurate. It's actually overall brain retraining or what we call amygdala and insula retraining. So it's retraining specifically those two brain structures and obviously the rest of the brain as well. And essentially what um, these researchers have found in Israel is that they were able in animal studies to show that when they took a, a group of mice that had colitis, yeah, there was inflammation uh, of the gut and they noticed an increase in activity in the insular part of the brain. Yeah. Now, they may have perceived that as simply a feedback mechanism. So there's inflammation in the gut and that's feeding back to the brain, perhaps in the insula, to tell the insula, hey, we've got stimulation of the gut or immune response in the gut. But what was very interesting is when they then stimulated the insula itself, it created the downstream inflammatory response in the gut, which they wow. didn't expect. And they were able to uh, you know, realize that the corresponding response in the gut was directly related to the level of activity in the insula and the specific part of the insula and that they could re-trigger it. And previous studies have shown by Dr. Paquero Lopez have actually shown that um, when they take rats and give them sweet water and uh, an immunosuppressant, then the immune system is reduced. When they repeat that cycle four or five times and then they give the rat sweet water by itself, we also get an immunosuppressed response and the core of that conditioning is in the insula. So that has always been known in science that that's a, a theoretical basis, but in this particular study, to actually re-stimulate that part of the brain and create an inflammatory response was very new and very different. And so this reinforces the idea that our immune conditioning for let's say illnesses like COVID-19 may well occur in the, in the insula. Now, obviously these are animal studies, but uh, you know, it, it, there's, there's no reason why it wouldn't be in the insula in, in human brains. And that the core conditioning of the in, uh, nervous system would occur in the amygdala part of the brain, because that's more related to psychological or general threats. And in fact, even in the amygdala, we now know that the amygdala responds 
to biological and immunological threats in addition to psychological threats. So the insular is essentially taking in incoming data from the body, interpreting it and creating an emotional context and responding accordingly. The amygdala is specifically taking threat uh, information and passing that on to the rest of the brain. So both the amygdala and insula are working in tandem to create the appropriate response to any kind of threat. And yeah, so this is really interesting and exciting uh, to see this kind of research uh, validating this type of response. So initially that team in Israel are looking at um, inflammatory markers or irritable bowel um, or gastrointestinal illnesses and saying, if we put patients in fMRI machines and if we could get them to reduce activity in the insula, maybe we could get them to have less downstream symptoms. And we say, well, actually, we've been doing this amygdala insular retraining for you know, 20 years now. Um, and this is exactly what we're attempting to do, is to, to you know, tone down, tap down that immunological response to bring back homeostasis. Fascinating. Um, so with your program, the, the insular and the amygdala um, can't just be sort of retrained with like cognitive behavioral therapy. It's not just like thinking, thinking your way through it. This is more of a a primal type of subconscious um activity i suppose that that's um you know overdrive potentially creating this inflammatory response is that correct like we can't just sort of you know think our way through it cognitively exactly it's definitely not cbt uh, in terms of what we're doing and the um the analogy i give is imagine learning to drive yeah so you're there on your first driving lesson now if you sit there in the car saying well let me just you know, think positively about driving and let me retrain any negative associations I have with driving and then I'll be able to drive. That's not necessarily you know, going to help. But to be fair to CBT, it's a whole range of different approaches that they have within the CBT context. And it's very powerful for things like depression and anxiety. So it's not to knock it. But the difference here is the brain has been trained to do something. So like learning to drive a car, you need to repeatedly do something different uh, so you learn on the first lesson to turn the steering wheel, move the gear stick or gear shift, as they say in the US, yeah. press the brake, yeah. press the accelerator and train yourself, your nervous system to do that automatically. Now, in the same way, our brain has trained itself automatically to respond to the COVID-19 infection, creating this response. And that's a protective response. So it's almost like training your brain that if you put your hand on a hot plate and your hand immediately does that, it's like training your brain to say, that hot plate feels hot and it feels dangerous, but it's not. Can you imagine you're going against the core training of your brain? So that's why it takes time and it takes repetition and it takes persistence. Yeah, you can't, you can't just tell your brain, stop doing that, because it will say, you don't know what's best for you. I'm doing what's best for you. You know, I know better than you. This is the intelligence of the body. The intelligence of the body is brilliant, but sometimes even that intelligence of the body can over-respond and over-protect. And that's what we're retraining. So the, as far as the brain and the body is concerned, they're not doing anything wrong. They're doing exactly what they need to do. It's just that it's an over-response. And so yeah. that regular retraining, so certainly there is a cognitive aspect to the training that we do, but the majority of it is training the brain in safety, that these symptoms do not represent evidence of ongoing infection, that we are safe and to train the brain to do that. And normally that's not possible, but what we do is we train some of that danger signaling on the periphery of consciousness. 
So what that means is that many patients will recognize that they are hypervigilant, that they have concerns about how they're feeling, that they interpret symptoms in their body as very dangerous. Now, a cognitive behavioral therapy approach would be, well, let's reinterpret those, you know, those messages and think about them in a different way. But we say, no, we have to retrain the brain to recognize those signaling, that signaling is uh, safe. And therefore, it's a far more in-depth process to achieve that. Fascinating. So you are now applying this, uh, your program in a clinical trial for long COVID. So, yeah, can you describe how did you manage to yeah, organize that? Was that after the success of your, your previous study? Um, and, yeah, can you tell us the details of the trial? Sure. So this is a, a small-scale study that's currently being conducted in the U.S. And um, it's... Uh, it's based on online patients. So as you can imagine, normally the process of getting clinical trials takes months and months, if not years, in most cases, obviously to get the funding. But this is a small scale trial just using self-reported patients online and recruiting them online uh, towards the study. So, this, so that study is kind of ongoing at the moment in terms of interpretation uh, of that study. So, yeah, we'll keep you informed of, of how that goes. But we're certainly pursuing uh, you know, other studies as well. Uh, in long COVID, but other conditions uh, on the back of the randomized control trial published in 2020. Oh, interesting. And what would the split be now um, with long COVID? Would you say, you know, 20, 30, 50% of your people now that are signing up to the program have long COVID? Um, I'd probably say about about 10 to 20%. Yeah, okay. Yep. The people that we're treating um, have long COVID because obviously we have a, you know, I suppose more of a reputation in the other uh, areas yeah, yeah, yeah. and other yeah. uh, conditions. Um, but certainly that's an increasing percentage. So they estimate in the UK alone, uh, there may be up to a million people who are suffering from long COVID. And then in, in the area of um, uh, America, uh, once again, they, they are probably estimating that there could be anything up to three to four million people. Uh, who are suffering from long COVID. So this is, you know, real, pa- that's the kind of hidden pandemic, as I call it, that that number of people suffering yeah. uh, in a healthcare emergency. And unfortunately, the longer you leave it, the more serious it can become, yeah, or the, you know, the more ingrained yeah. it becomes in the nervous system. So we're really on a mission to uh, do more of these clinical trials, uh, show that we can have a positive impact on people's health and then uh, look to see how we can train other practitioners to deliver this kind of approach or certainly support those patients in whatever way we can. Yeah. Um, for those that missed the first episode we did, um, could you describe what some of the outlines of the, the activities and exercise, if you want to call that, that you do um, in, in the program on a daily basis and, and, the, and then the overall duration of a, a program? Sure. So our program is an online program. Uh, so we have many patients, uh, US, Europe, uh, even Australia, Australia, New Zealand. So it can be done in a, a patient's own time. And the way it works is that they can initially have a, a free trial. So they get to sample uh, you know, what we're doing. And if they take the full program, then it's 15 interactive video sessions online uh, with about 20 different audio exercises that they can listen to. It can be on their phone or on their, their tablet. So it's very accessible together with a package they receive at home. So they receive a, a book um, and a floor chart. So they get all the retraining materials and then they get weekly webinars with myself where I take them through step-by-step step how to retrain their brain. So we like to give people a lot of support. Uh, they also get access to a very loving and caring online community 
where they can ask lots of questions. Lovely. And we've also got 20 or 30 coaches around the world who are trained to support people uh, through that. So it's a very supportive environment. And in terms of their commitment, we say a minimum of half an hour every day, which we think everybody can commit to. Yes. And like anything, the more that you engage with the program, the better the benefits are going to be. And of course, uh, ideally, they'd have a coach working with them through it or a, a practitioner. But that comes down to people's finances as to whether they can afford to do that. So may, many, many people just take the core program. And in terms of daily activities, so some supporting techniques are things like breathing and meditation, because we know breathing and meditation increases neuroplasticity in the brain and makes it more rewirable. And then the core retraining techniques are techniques that people repeat throughout the day, each time they become aware of the danger signaling that we teach people to recognize. Uh, then there are lots of other tools and techniques. Uh, there are other brain retraining techniques. There are supportive lifestyle things, so diet, exercise, sleep, pacing, exposure to sunlight, all of those things, once again, support retraining. So we hope to come from a truly holistic perspective um, of looking at all aspects of someone's life to help them. And of course, I don't know if you noticed this, but we noticed this, a lot of our nutri you know, people who are nutritionists and alternative practitioners notice this, which is someone may heal and recover from our interventions, but then as soon as some extra stress comes into their lives, they're back into the clinic again. Because what's happened is, there's been uh, coupling, neuronal coupling, where stress and the stress response has got coupled with the immune response. And therefore, a lot of our work is also teaching people how to manage stress. And even when stress comes along, how do they make sure they don't go back into a dip and have symptoms coming back? So that's a really important part of retraining. So we're retraining the primary cycle, which is the body's response to its own symptoms. And then the secondary cycle, which is retraining the brain to enable people to go on to keep their nervous system calm so that even if stress occurs it doesn't re-trigger uh, symptoms back in the body yeah fantastic um we uh discussed a paper offline that um it was published the other day which ties into um the the, the stress and the triggers and you mentioned how you give advice or some general advice on nutrition and lifestyle and sleep and so forth um on the other hand, you mentioned that this is not like CBT, but um, well, the paper showed that more patients with long COVID were more probably self-diagnosed with COVID than actually having a positive PCR test. Um, so is there a, a, an element of people, um, I wouldn't say overworrying, but, you know, being um, overwhelmed by all the, the media reports of COVID and every time you, you turn on the TV or the media, there's cases and numbers and fatalities. And um, obviously it's very, uh, you know, the, the fear cells in media and then also social media that people can get into these little echo chambers and it can really amplify all the stress around COVID. So do you have any thoughts and advice to your patients on like, how do you, do you go on like a media diet or anything to also stop these stresses coming into your life, particularly around COVID? Um, yes, I agree with the latter for sure that um, firstly, we encourage a lot of our patients to go on that media diet because the nature of media is to stimulate your amygdala. <laughs> so, <Yeah. laughs> you know, uh, I, I once spoke to a journalist and he said that in the journalism world, it's, if it bleeds, it leaves. It bleeds. Yes. Right? And, and so it's very important that oh, and we, we certainly encourage our patients to switch off the news and we say, look, if somebody comes up with a miracle cure for long COVID, we'll be the first people to let you know. 
right? Yeah. Yeah. But until then, just use our program and don't read into the negativity. And sometimes we encourage our patients not even to be part of the support groups because support groups can be also highly negative and, and actually victim, but you know, very much into the victim stage of there's nothing we can do, how terrible is our illness, which doesn't support retraining. So certainly that's important. And then in terms of emotional contagion, the whole world has been through a very challenging two years and or a year and a half. And I can totally understand that that has increased levels of anxiety. And we know that. So we know, for instance, young people in the US, 40% of young people are regularly experiencing anxiety up from 25%. Yeah. And therefore, inevitably, as part of our hypothesis, we know that if the brain is on high alert, it's more prone to learning conditioning effects, just like post-traumatic stress disorder. If, you, if you're at a high state of alert for a continual period of time, there's more likely to be conditioning effects. And therefore, no doubt, uh, there has been emotional contagion uh, around uh, the, you know, having the virus, potentially even having long COVID. That has definitely been on people's minds. Now, has that had an impact on the rates of long COVID? At this stage, very, very difficult to say. But I would say it may have had an influence. Uh, yeah. Interesting. Now, another area that I wanted to, to discuss, and um, again, it's only emerging, and this is a bit of a, a change of direction, but I'm curious to know if the, the Gupta program could potentially help in this area. So um, and that's around uh, side effects or adverse reactions from the vaccination. So um, not not the ones like the the myocarditis and pericarditis but there seems to be um, neurological symptoms reported um, by many patients and practitioners um, in sort of context I, looking on the research like the, the large trials like in Israel I think they collect some of the best data on this it doesn't seem to be like a significant uptick in things like Bell's palsy and um, demyelinating conditions probably in fact COVID would is been shown to actually provide or produce symptoms more than the actual vaccine. But there seems to be a large number that we're hearing anecdotally of people fainting, um, dizziness, um, temporary paralysis after a, a COVID vaccine. And um, I shared some papers and we could put the links into the show notes. Um, there is one hypothesis that it may not be the actual vaccine and the inflammatory response, but um, what they've dubbed this functional uh, neurological disorder where because of these emotional charged events of vaccination or and maybe that's fueled by, um, you know, the obviously the pandemic and the lockdown, that the brain has become dysfunctional and um, all these symptoms are emerging. It's still very early days, but I, um, I was curious on your take and if that is the a case, could something like the Gupta program be helpful rather than, if the patient or practitioner feels it's like an adverse immune reaction from the mm. vaccine, they could be chasing down the wrong pathway with whatever, you know, immune modulators or anti-inflammatories, but could it actually be a more of a upstream um, effect of some sort of disorganised brain activity? Uh, yes. I mean, thank you for, for bringing that to, to my attention. I wasn't aware of this type of um, issue. And so just to start off in terms of the vaccines, certainly many of our patients with ME, chronic fatigue syndrome and fibromyalgia, they've been naturally very cautious about mm. taking the vaccines because they already feel they may be immunocompromised. Or, you know. yeah. And certainly the research has shown that patients who have previous functional disorders, they may have a slight more chance of adverse reactions to the vaccine. But also the research has shown that over time, 
those tend to dissipate and mm. the vast majority of people who have the vaccine don't have any long-term adverse effects. They may just have an initial reaction. Now, if the scenarios that you're describing, essentially you could see it as part of our working hypothesis on what causes uh, long COVID. Uh, similar processes occurring where you may have somebody who has a lot of negative anticipation about taking the vaccine uh, or who's you know, in a highly uh, sensitized state about it. Then you combine it with a physical stressor. So, yes, the mm. vaccine is a stressor on the body. That's what it's designed to do. It's designed to stimulate mm. um, a, a response. You, a combination of those two things may then create a contemporary conditioning effect in the insula, which is obviously what we've been talking about. Yeah. Yeah. And that temporary conditioning event could then mean that uh, the body is the, the brain and the body are responding with symptoms similar to those of if you actually got COVID-19. So many of the symptoms you've described about people having intense weakness, even collapsing, we've seen that anecdotally even in COVID-19 infection. Mm. Uh, it can be a widespread effect on the body. And so therefore, yes, it could well be that many patients or these acute reactions to the vaccine could be due to a conditioning effect um, in the brain. Uh, obviously, that's a, a hypothesis uh, once again. So if someone's got a pure, you know, we, we talk about this pure immunological response. This is the thing. There's no such thing as a pure immunological response or a pure psychological response. Mm. It is the brain's overall response to a threat, which involves both a physical response, an immunological response and a uh, an emotional response. Yeah. So I'll give you an example. <clears throat> Something as very routine as hay fever. Now, what's happening is that your brain in a previous situation has been exposed to pollen and at that point in time believed it was a threat. Yeah. And now, even if there are minor bits of pollen, it will respond as if they are a threat. So what happens when you have exposure to pollen is that you you have an emotional response because we do feel quite down and negative and physically, you know, emotionally anxious when we have that response. So there's an emotional response. We have a physical response, which is we want to run away from that particular environment. Yeah, so that's a protective response. And there's also an immunological response, which is that um, you know, activation of that allergic response. So you can see how something as <clears throat> mild as pollen can create responses at all three or four levels uh, of response. So it is with the vaccine or anything else, the body is creating a package of responses to deal with that situation. Mm. And therefore our emotional uh, anticipation can impact on the severity of that response. So it's modern modern medicine differentiates between psychology and physiology. True. The brain yeah. does not. The brain yeah. has a yeah. coordinated yeah. response. So as you mentioned, you obviously um, your community has many people who are, are sensitive, whether it's food sensitivities and so forth. I mean, as you said, understandably, there's a probably a lot of hesitancy and caution in these patients in getting the COVID vaccine. Have you noticed with um, patients going through your program that they have been able to maybe be more confident or um, have actually, um, you know, had a, been administered the vaccine and um, had a basically uneventful, you know, administration of the, the vaccine? It's been a mixed picture. Yeah. Um, so I think some have. What they've been able to do is use our toolkit to reduce the impact, I would hope. Now, it's impossible for us to, to say. Exactly. Yeah. But I would say that um, anecdotally, the fact that they've got that toolkit means that there's a similar response going off. There's, an emo there's, a, there's a kind of sensitivity of the nervous system combined with a vaccine that may be creating other conditioning effects. They've been able to reduce that and bring the body back to normal 
uh, functioning. So I do think um, that that has probably been a real help for them because obviously, even though people are cautious about the sensitivity response, at the same time, I do emphasize to people, and this isn't medical advice, this is something that, um, <clears throat> that each person has to consult their doctor with, but we do advise people to, to take the vaccine because actually, if you were to compare the, the two effects, the effects of actually getting the COVID-19 infection, in our view, would be much more severe than the side effects from, from taking yeah. the vaccine. Yeah. And unfortunately, as we know, COVID-19 is here to stay. You know, it's, it's not something that's going to disappear overnight. It's always going to be pockets of localized infection um, ongoing. And so therefore, training our immune system to respond is, is probably the right thing to do. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, looking at the research, um, it seems like, just from the research, it seems like it's the lesser of two evils getting the, the vaccine. Um, but obviously, yeah, it's everybody's choice. Um, I did have a question. Um, does the vaccine, has it been shown to reduce the severity or, um, you know, the, the incidence of long COVID? I, I've only seen anecdotes and mixed reports. So initially, I remember there was some optimism around it, but I haven't looked into it too much lately. Um, any thoughts there? There has been uh, some anecdotal reports that people had long COVID. They then took the vaccine and they suddenly felt a lot better. There's also been reports of it making people worse. Yeah. Now, in, in terms of both of those effects, it makes logical sense. So let's say someone has long COVID. They've had COVID-19. They now have lingering symptoms. Having the vaccine is like it's literally a shot in the arm of the immune system, because what it's doing is, the immune system says, I'm not sure if the infection is still here. I'm going to continue an inflammatory response to make sure that we're on red alert for it. Suddenly, you then have a vaccine, which is reintroducing uh, an element of the virus. So it's obviously not reintroducing the virus itself. It's reintroducing uh, the spike protein or a representation of the spike protein on, on, the, on the side of the virus. The immune system then thinks, oh, I was right the threat is still here, and here it is, if it then creates an appropriate immune response, that may then trigger it to go back into the off position. Do you see? So the immune system is in the on position in long COVID. Suddenly, we have a vaccine that tells the immune system that it was right to be in the on system. It yeah. then creates the appropriate response to the spike proteins and then goes back to its homeostasis, so it switches off and goes back to neutral because it now believes it's has fulfilled its role. So in some ways, uh, you know, some novel immunological uh, research, if they could figure out a way of, you know, once again, resetting that immune system, some shape or form. Now, I, don't, you know, I think I believe, I believe that's been quite tricky, but that would be another way that we could bring the system back to homeostasis. Now, in terms of it making it worse, the immune system is on its process of continual response suddenly the vaccine is introduced, it confirms to the immune system that there is a threat yeah. and therefore yeah. ratchets up its continual immune response because it justifies it. So that's why we might be seeing cases of it going one way or the other. Either it makes people better or it seems to be making people worse. Okay, yeah, that, makes, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Interesting. All right, um, so when do you expect to see the results of your um, uh, long COVID trial? Uh, we hope to have that within the, the next few months. Um, okay. And yeah. then we will obviously, it's, it's an initial pilot study and it's uh, <clears throat> done with patients online. So we'll see what the results come out of this particular pilot um, and then kind of see how we need to readdress some of the, the ways that we're presenting our program and obviously publish those results and um, 
go for larger scale studies. So yeah, watch this space. Okay, excellent. And you said you some, had some other trials um, in the, the pipeline as well? Uh, yeah, so they're at the stage of negotiation right now in terms of trials on uh, long COVID and then trials on um, fibromyalgia and chronic fatigue syndrome. So they're all in the pipeline. And of course, publishing that randomized controlled trial last year really made a, uh, you know, it made waves because people knew that anecdotally they'd heard of people getting better. But now to actually have an RCT published in a very mainstream journal uh, really was a kick in the arm, a shot in the arm for, um, <laughs> pardon the pun, uh, for our for our research. And um, just I, I'm referring to our research, but in fact, that was an independent study that was conducted using our treatment. So we weren't actually involved in the, in the uh, process of that paper itself. So it was fully independent. That's right. I, I just looked at it earlier this morning and um, I was like, well, where's your name? It's not even on the paper. <laughs> yeah. So that obviously because we are delivering the treatment itself, uh, from a scientific perspective, we want to make sure it's fully independent and therefore we don't get involved in uh, any aspects apart from simply delivering our arm of the treatment. Brilliant. Well, it's been fascinating to hear about long COVID and your thoughts around the potential you know, uh, adverse reactions to the vaccines. Um, it's good to refresh again on the, the program. Um, any sort of final words on the program, the future directions, um, how people can get involved? Sure. So firstly, um, if you know somebody who has long COVID, you know, obviously for us, we're just trying to get as many people better as possible. And so until we get the large scale clinical trials, we do offer, uh, you know, a one year money back guarantee on our treatment. So from an ethical perspective, if there's practitioners, doctors out there who are having patients, not sure where to send them, uh, you know, here is an option that can be delivered straight away that doesn't rely on waiting lists or anything like that. And so people can go to our website, which is uh, www.guptaprogram.com. And there patients can sign up for a 28-day free trial so they can sample it, see what they think of it. And if somebody is a medical practitioner or alternative practitioner who's treating other patients, uh, we also um, offer six months free access to those practitioners so that they get a sense of what this is about and whether it could be helpful for their patients. So all they need to do is email our clinic and uh, they'll be set up with a free account so they can access uh, the materials. And um, on the research side, uh, we'd love to partner with other organizations across the world to um, look at into different interventions. So science always works on the, 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 the uh, I suppose, the persuasion of research or the, the body of research that backs something up. So it's not that we do one study and it's proven. We need to do multiple studies in, in multiple ways to show that this is effective. So we can deliver a study uh, around the world uh, for different types of uh, conditions. And we believe we would show you know, a really positive response compared to a control group. So our future direction is we want to really, first of all, specialise it or, or have more research in the long COVID arena, because that is really pressing. That's the health emergency. And uh, do phase two, phase three trials to, to prove its effectiveness. Fantastic. The future looks bright. Um, I really appreciate your time. It's been great to reconnect again and you explain things so well with all your <laughs> Game of Thrones analogies and uh, neurophysiology. I really appreciate your time and perhaps we can catch up again in the future and, and see what sort of updates have unfolded. Yeah, I'd love to. Thank you so much for, for having me. It's been really interesting. Thank you so much. For useful links and resources, make sure you check out the show notes. 
The information provided in this episode is for educational purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for health and medical care. Always consult a healthcare professional for medical advice.